According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Philippians 2. We are still in uh, Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2. The imperative to make my joy complete. And we're looking at uh, completed joy. Uh, We recommend it. It's better than incomplete joy. Um. Incomplete joy is alone. That's the, that's the short version of it, all right? Complete joy is with the body of Christ and being able to share that rejoicing with brothers and sisters that have the capacity to share that rejoicing. And that's what Paul is inviting the Philippians to do and uh, what I'm inviting us to do and uh, the Lord is inviting all of us to do as we learn this doctrine. All right, before we get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer asking the Father to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this evening thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your grace, rejoicing, Father, in the blessings of your plan and uh, the, the uh, privilege that we have to obey your commands. And we're here to study, to show ourselves, to be approved, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's a command you've given. We're very happy to be obedient, Father, because uh, this is what... Th- uh, feeds us, what nourishes us, what builds us up in the faith, strengthen, strengthens us in the inner man. Father, it is a, it is a joy and a delight to, uh, to obey this command. So here we are, Father. Feed us, teach us, bless us, and um, glorify your Son. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we do have uh, Q&A time tonight. It's become our tradition on Wednesdays to take our first few minutes. So uh, microphone runner is ready to go. There was one that came by email. Let me start with that. In fact, it was the microphone runner that emailed. <laughs> All right. In layman's terms, can you explain why Jehovah's Witness uh, assertion that the lack of an article in John 1.1 does not necessarily mean that Jesus was a God? Yeah, that's a dumb thing, and they, they do that. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Okay? We're, we're very familiar with that. In the Greek, anarche, ain halagos, kai halagos, ain Proston theon, kai theos in ha lagos. And the big deal about that is, uh, do I have my little laser thing? Yeah, the big deal about that is that you got theos right there and it doesn't have a definite article in front of it. It doesn't have ha, it's not ha theos, it's just theos. And, uh, and so they, they jump on that and they say, see, see, Jesus, or the word was a God, and uh, so forth. Anyway, it's, it's lame. Uh, there's a reason why the article is dropped. The article is dropped for Greek grammatical reasons, and it would be wrong for it not to be dropped. Theos almost always takes the article, and so if it doesn't have the article, there's a reason for that. It's either speaking of plural false gods uh, in, a, in a general sense, or uh, it, there's other reasons why the does not have the article. So uh, you want a layman's reason or you want a Greek reason? You wanted a layman's reason. The layman's reason is because. <laughs> Um, and this is what happens because you have an is verb Amy is the most common of the is verbs there's others but if, if you have a sentence with something is something right Bob is pastor you know if you have a sentence like that an is sentence then you have instead of having a subject and an object as you would have in other sentences you have a subject and then a predicate complement is what you end up having so they're both put in the nominative case and since they're both put in the nominative case, the, the, the thing that's acting as an object loses its article. Is that layman enough? So it loses its article so that it's clear that this one has the article, it's the subject, this one is, is, has dropped its article just as a matter of, of deference, it's dropped its article so it's the, it would be the object if it was the kind of sentence that had an object. So that's, that way when it does say when it does say uh, theos ain halagos. The only way to understand that is the word was God. Okay, and the in the sentence before, um, it, you can't turn it around to say God was the word. It says the word was God because theos dropped the article. Anyway, that's that's the answer there. Generally speaking, if you're debating a Jehovah's Witness, they're not going to listen to you anyway. So don't worry about. It. Um, there's also. Um, 
a resource available in Logos. I don't know if you have it in your particular library. It's called Jehovah's Witnesses Answered Verse by Verse. And, uh, and I recommend it. The author's name is David Reed. And uh, he's got a good development on this. He, by the way, he points out their Bible didn't always do this. They, they made a revision to their Bible in 1950 to, to make it say the word was a God. And they felt that that was handy to uh, try to support their theology. But that just came about in 1950. The Bible they had before that was the American Standard Version of 1901, and it wasn't translated that way. Um, and even their own Bible has a problem because uh, in John 20, um, they admit that uh, the Word was God. So even their own Bible admits it in other passages. It's a fairly lengthy article. John 20, 28. Jesus answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, talking to Jesus, right? And Thetos there has the article. So, I mean, if you're going to be dumb and just insisting on a stupid argument and saying, well, the article's missing in John 1, 1, just take them to John 20, 28. The article's there. So if you're trying to build a, a big theology on that, you're in kind of kind of lame. All right, then Lewis, a second question unrelated to Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, do we actually know much about the loss of rewards in any kind of detail? So we talk about rewards and loss of rewards, right? We're, we're laying up treasure in heaven. We want to we uh, serve in such a way that at the judgment seat of Christ we receive rewards. And I don't know about you, uh, I want to receive a lot of rewards. I want to have wheelbarrows. I want to have angels you know, lined up in a bucket brigade. Uh, not because, for me, because our privilege then is to cast our crowns at Jesus' feet, right? And so I want to cast more. I don't want to just, you know, reach in my pocket and find some loose change, right? My empty pockets and find loose change and throw throw little nickels at, at Christ's feet. I want buckets to pour at Christ's feet. So as far as loss of rewards goes, uh, just a handful of verses. Um, Matthew 5, 12. Um, Whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say, he shall not lose his reward. So there's a message of Jesus where he talks about losing a reward. And in particular oriented to children, that if you cause one of them to stumble, that might be a fast track for losing rewards. Um, Matthew 10, 42. The one I just looked at. Matthew 5, 12. There we go. Rejoice and be glad. This is when you're being persecuted. Uh, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so now that doesn't deal with loss of reward, but it does talk about a scale of reward. So if you can have a great reward for enduring persecution, then bailing on your persecution diminishes that great reward or removes that great reward altogether. So that would be a, a loss of reward passage. Of course, 1 Corinthians 3.15 if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. I think there's going to be some church-age saints there that have nothing but their resurrection bodies, right? They have no reward whatsoever. You know, the, the, the thief on the cross, what kind of reward does he have? He got saved and he died, all right? So if you're, you know, those deathbed conversions where there's not, you know, there's no time to bear fruit for Christ or lay up treasures in heaven or whatever, there's no reward for them. So that's another concept. Hebrews 10.35 says, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Uh, Revelation 3.11 says, let no one take your crown. That's a loss of reward right there. So if I bail on an assignment, I've got a chance to give the gospel to somebody and I chicken out. Somebody else comes along and doesn't chicken out and gives them the gospel. Well, they get the crown for that. It should have been mine. But I bailed on that. And the imperative here says, let no one take your crown. And then the last one I found was Galatians 6.9. Uh, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So what do we understand then? If we do grow weary, we're not going to reap in due time. We are forfeiting reward. We're going to lose reward. So anyway, I'm sure there's more. And if uh, one of our students wants to do a study on, on loss of reward, uh, I would encourage you to do that. And uh, you can start with those verses right there. How about that? All right, so I'm going to mark this as answered. And do we have additional questions tonight? And we'll start with Al. Can you give us that reference to that Jehovah's Witness book again? Yes, it's called uh, Jehovah's Witnesses Answered Verse by Verse. And the author is David Reed, David A. Reed. He's got a couple of different books on different cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, different things.
Okay? Yes, R-E-E-D. All right. Back row. Okay, Bob, I was going to lob you a softball, but uh, since you mentioned the, um, the lay up uh, your treasures in heaven, okay, let me ask you this. What do you uh, make of Luke 17.21? I'll quote it for you. Okay, I, I didn't uh, hear the first part of your question, but I'm going to Luke 17 what? Okay, yeah, the first part of the question, uh, this is in, in uh, reference to laying up storing your treasures in heaven right? Okay. Where, where, where they won't rust or where moths won't eat them up or anything like that. Right. Okay, well, uh, what do you make of um, Luke 17, 21? Uh, it says, uh, uh, Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Or actually, let me read you the King James. Neither shall they say, Lo, here or lo, there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So is not heaven within you? And is that not where our treasures ought to be? Well, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And we're told not to have our focus on the things below, but to set your mind on the things above, uh, where Christ is, seated but, at the right hand of God. When, when Jesus ascended, he ascended, uh, he ascended to heaven. He ascended above, and he's now seated at the Father's right hand. And so you know, we accept the, the metaphoric directions of above and below for heaven and hell. Um, but the idea that the kingdom is in your midst or the kingdom is within you, uh, different ways that that can be translated, different ways that can be understood. But that's, that's Jesus' message to the Pharisees and really not... Um, when when, when the, he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, when the king was present, when the kingdom was being offered, um, that's all now on hold because the kingdom was rejected and they crucified their Christ and Israel's been waiting 2,000 years now for the, for the king to return again. So... Um, you know, the kingdom of God is in your midst is a much better way to talk to... Because the kingdom of God isn't inside the Pharisees. He's talking to these Pharisees. The Pharisees are the ones that are, that are attacking him and hating him and, and whatever. So I, I realize there are people that want to translate the, the thing as within you there, but I think in your midst is, is, is far better. No, wait a minute, though. Is he talking to the Pharisees or the disciples? I mean, Having been questioned the by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said... Okay, one more follow-up, and I promise I'll, I'll pass this aside. All right. Um, okay, well, if, if the kingdom is centered around the king, and if our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is God, because God is spirit, then mm-hmm. isn't he enthroned upon our hearts? Therefore, wasn't, wouldn't uh, the kingdom of heaven actually be within us collectively? I, you might think of it that way, but... The Holy Spirit's never called the king as the Holy Spirit is the deposit, the down payment for the ultimate rewards we will have in, in the resurrection. Uh, Jesus is the king and Jesus is presently waiting. Uh, Psalm 110, he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Then he will come from the Father's right hand and descend to the earth and land on the Mount of Olives. And then he'll roll, rule on the throne of David in Jerusalem. All that's still future, eschatologically speaking. Uh, so the kingdom... Uh, the kingdom was, was rejected. The kingdom was delayed. The kingdom is now not of this world. As Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would be coming and fighting for me and releasing me. And, and Instead, he went to the cross. So um, I think it's best also, too, um, and I realize there's a lot of churches out there that talk about the kingdom being here and now, but um, if the kingdom's here and now, then what's the point of saying, thy kingdom come? Uh, if it's here now already, then that kind of becomes redundant or, or, or nonsensical. But thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's still in heaven until he descends. He's still seated at the Father's right hand. That's Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet, for your feet. And then he says, go forth and rule in the midst of your enemies. And that's what the, the millennium's about. He has to rule in Jerusalem in the midst of, in the midst of enemies. So. Anyway, good question, though. Good answer. All right. Thanks. Anything else? Going once, going twice. I'd be a terrible auctioneer. All right. Well, then let's get to, uh, thank you for running the microphone. Let's go to Philippians 2. We're going to make joy complete. We, uh, 
spent most of our time in the uh, recent classes dealing with the four ifs in verse 1. I'm not going to redo all that. Um, but chapter 2 starts with a therefore, and the therefore is a, is a bridge back to chapter 1. And so everything that was dealt with at the end of chapter 1, we've got to bring that into chapter 2. And so that talks about opponents, that talks about conflict, not being alarmed, that talks about suffering, and suffering the things that Paul was suffering. And so as, as those last things come together there at the end of chapter 2, so he talks about, um, <coughs> he says what, uh, in verse 27 of chapter 1, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And that language gets repeated in the early verses here of chapter 2. One spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents. So there's conflict. If you're serving the Lord, there's going to be conflict. It's a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So that's the exhortation that ended chapter 1, and that is contained within the therefore that crosses us now into chapter 2, if there is any encouragement in Christ. So you're going to go through all this. And, and as Paul was encouraging them, I'm going to encourage you, uh, us, tonight. We're going to go through this. But as we go through this, remember, there is encouragement in Christ. There's a lot of it. Okay, Not just some, not just a little bit. There's a ton. There's an infinite amount. There is encouragement without measure. And yet, all he's really saying is if there is any. If there is even the smallest amount. And if there is any consolation of love. If agape love, is, is that able at all, even a little bit, is that able to offer consolation? Of course it is. Agape can offer tons of consolation. Is there any quinonia, fellowship of the Spirit? Of course there is. There's tons of it. There's an infinite amount. All of these are first class conditions assumed to be true. If there is any affection and compassion and that's where we are right now. We, we've dealt with affection, we're going to wrap up compassion, and then we're going to move on to verse 2 where we're going to study plerao and pleroma and the fullness of making my joy complete. Alright, so this, uh, this is under the outline uh, title of make my joy complete. It's kind of a heading for uh, verses 1 and 2. And under that heading then, um, one, two, three main points... We're still in the midst of the third point, assuming these four things, all right? Because they're all a given. Assuming this, assuming this, assuming this, assuming this. And since all four are true, then make my joy complete by doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this, okay? And the four things he expects them to do go hand in hand with the four assumptions that he made, okay? And we'll spot that too, because when we look at the... At the uh, Verse 2, when it says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, okay, and we're going to connect that with encouragement in Christ, maintaining the same love, that's the second item, which pairs up very well with the second item of verse 1, consolation of love, um, united in spirit, that's the third thing there in verse 2, that parallels very well with fellowship of the spirit in verse 1, and then uh, uh, intent on one purpose. And so when we're going to become purpose-driven, relax, we're going to become purpose-driven in, in I know it's terrible, isn't it? in uh, Philippians 2.2, 2, but that purpose has its parallel in verse 1 with affection and compassion, okay? And so as we keep these four, um, the four assumptions and the four applications uh, together, it's, uh, it should work out well for us. All right, uh, so we talked about uh, and subpoint A, talking about encouragement. Subpoint B, consolation. Subpoint C, fellowship. And now we're in the midst of subpoint D because this has two parts. This has the affection and the um, compassion. So if there is any, even the smallest amount, affection. And if there is any, even the smallest amount, compassion. This is a hyphenated one. 
The first three were all single items that were um, that had a noun in connection with them, right? So the encouragement was the encouragement in Christ. The consolation was the consolation of love. The fellowship was the fellowship of the Spirit, right? So each one of those first three, there were singletons, and they, but each one of them was connected to something else, to, to Christ, to love, to the Holy Spirit. Now this one is, is structured differently because it's a tandem, it's a pair. It, it takes two things, affection and compassion, but includes them both within the fourth if. Okay? So there's not a fifth if, there's only four ifs. If there is any, there's only four any's, there's not a fifth any, if there is any affection and compassion. Okay? Affection and compassion. And this is, these are the emotions of, of, of uh, the Christian walk. These are the feelings. We want to get in touch with our feelings. Okay? We want to be emotional. Notice it's the fourth item on the list. It's not the first item on the list. And there is a place for emotions and it's never in the driver's seat. All right? It tends to be um, listed and then it tends to be referenced after other doctrinal issues are dealt with. So uh, on Sunday we, t- we took you through the Splanknon verses. The, those are the ver- uh, verses for affection. They have to do with your guts. They have to do with your, uh, I mean literally a sp- Splanknon refers to the intestines. It refers to your entrails. But metaphorically, as the Greeks understood it, uh, Splanknon, your, your guts, your belly was the seat of your uh, passions, the seat of your emotions. And so um, the things that we are affectionate towards, that's where it comes from. And that we should be affectionate towards one another and compassionate towards one another. So uh, those are the verses there for uh, affection. And now uh, tonight we want to look at compassion. All right? Did we, we didn't get through all of those, did we? Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Philemon, three verses in Philemon. And then 1 John 3, 17. If you see your brother in need and you close your splanknon, you close your heart against your brother. It's not cardia. It's not uh, closing your cardia against your brother. It's closing your splanknon, your emotional heart against your brother. Or um, I, I think the translators like heart because that's how we use it in English, right? And so in English we use heart that way. Um, on an emotional level, and that's unfortunate because cardia is not emotional. And yet, cardia is the main word for heart in the New Testament. All right. In any event, wiktirmas. Wiktirmas. And I'm still puzzling over wiktirmas, only the, the, the wik part of wiktirmas. I don't know for a fact if the wik part of wiktirmas uh, refers to any other wik that you might be familiar with, right? Like an oikos is a house. Okay? And so and then there's other weak terms and maybe, uh, well, I'm going to let it go. I'll, I'll do some more research and come back when I know something. Um, weak is also, by the way, a valid Scrabble word if you want to use O-I-K. <laughs> it's one of the new ones just recently added in the 2014 update. But weak termos. Now, weak termos has only got five New Testament uses, so there's not a lot of it in the New Testament. Um, and in to be rendered as mercy is also somewhat confusing too because the Bible's got tons of mercy in it. But it's not oikthermos. The, the, the mercy we're used to, like uh, grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied unto you or, or surely goodness and mercy. Or, I mean, the Bible's got mercy everywhere. And it's usually eleos or eleao or, there, or eleomasune or some of those other Greek words in that same family. This one, it has nothing to do with that family. And it's a different kind of mercy. It's a different kind of mercy. The, God's mercy uh, is expressed oftentimes on a judicial basis when a court is merciful or on a, a ruler basis when the king is merciful or when, when you really should have a harsher punishment than you have but God is merciful so He limits the kind of judgment He puts you under. That's mercy. Okay, And generally speaking God's mercy is not an emotional thing. But this mercy is an emotional thing. And so you can think if you, if you want to like we talked about the difference between the cardia heart and the, and the uh, splanknon heart, something similar would be here between the eleos mercy and the oikotermos mercy. So in the first half it's, it's, it's doctrinal, it's, it's integrity, it's not emotional. Here though it is clearly emotional. So uh, five uses, it won't take long to look at them, but we start, by the way, we start with Romans 12.1. 
And do I want to start there? Yeah, well, I guess I'll start there. Romans 12.1. Sometimes I take them in a different order. <clears throat> and uh, the biggest aspect here is the fact that our culture is so modern that we don't often um, express vows or we don't often express adjurations in the way that the ancient world did all the time. And even in mid the medieval world, and anyway, this is what we're talking about here. It says, therefore I urge you, brethren, I admonish you, I uh, parakaleo you. This is an exhortation. So therefore, it's not an imperative, but it's an exhortation. Therefore I exhort you, brethren, by the oiktirmos, it's plural, oiktirmoi, I urge you, I exhort you, brethren, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Okay? And so, generally, when this verse gets preached, we, we're headed other directions. Okay? We're focused on other things. We're focused on living sacrifice, right? We're focused on worship, spiritual service of worship. We're, we're focused on a lot of stuff. And really, the by the mercies of God is almost in passing. Well, it is in passing. Because it's, it's phrased as the context, or the witness, actually, the testimony witness to the urging. Right? The testimony witness to the urging. So, what is that? What is the testimony witness? So, this is where... Um, our modern culture has just totally lost it because we don't take vows and we don't, well, I mean, kind of do maybe, but um, so you put your hand on a Bible, raise your hand, you say, so help me God, right? That's the closest we have in our culture uh, is the fact that we invoke God as, our, as, as the witness to our oath, as the witness to our promise, to our truthfulness. We say, so help me God, right? Or maybe there's other things. We might swear, you know, I swear on my mother's grave. Okay, right? What does that even mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. Or, or we, we say, by Jove, by Jupiter, by George, by, you know, and, and my dad always would say, by George, you know, like, really? You know, or you read Asterix comics, right? They're talking about by Tautitus or by Bellinos or by Jupiter. The Romans were always saying by Jupiter and the, and the Gauls were always saying by Tautitus. And anyway, if you're going to invoke somebody, that means you are welcoming them to observe what's happening. And if they aren't pleased with it, or if you're lying in your oath, or something else is going on, then you're calling upon them to apply the consequences. Right? And, and, and like I say, we don't do much of this. It's a little children's ditty on the playground when you say, you know, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Who does that? Okay? Nobody does that. There's nobody standing there with a needle ready to... Nobody does that, right? And your pants are never on fire even if, <laughs> even if you're lying, right? We get all these expressions. So, <laughs> as dumb as all these things are, in the ancient world they were serious. And God Himself is speaking here. So if I urge you by the mercies of God. That's far worse than a command. Okay? Because what this is saying is I am urging you. God is urging, or through the Apostle Paul, Scripture is urging us. I urge you by the mercies of God. I urge you by the compassion of God. So that's what's being called to witness. That's the, that's the observer. That's the, that's the collateral. Think of it as collateral. Right? You put something up for collateral and then you don't, you don't pay the bill and so they take your collateral. God's mercy is collateral. By the mercies of God. So if you don't present your body as a living and holy sacrifice, in effect you're telling God, take a hike, I don't need your mercy. Right? And I don't know about you, do you want to spend the rest of your life here on earth without the mercies of God? <laughs> this is powerful. I urge you by the mercies of God. 
So if you're not going to obey Paul because maybe you don't like Paul, or you've got a personality thing against Paul, or whatever you think Paul's, whatever, I tell you, this is worse than an imperative. This is an exhortation that is invoking, invocation, invoking the mercies of God. So if you want to ignore it, you are forsaking the mercies of God. That's how serious this is. All right. Anyway, that's the, that's the first of the five uses there. And it's, it's, it's remarkable because it's almost in a throwaway expression. It's almost in a, and we would lose that. I think our modern mind just glosses over it. We're, we're eager to get to the holy sacrifice part. All right. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1.3. And this is useful because it's got a tandem of terms. You notice in a lot of these, like termos tends to not stand alone. It, it did there in Romans 12.1, but in 2 Corinthians, he is the um, father of oikteromos, plural, and the god of all comfort, paraklesis, that we looked at last week. Because that was the first one in, in verse 1, if there is any comfort in Christ. right? And so both of them are here. There's the comfort, and there's also the mercies. We might think of as... Um, tender mercies sometimes. I think the old King James would have tender mercies. And I like that. It's, it's not only you know, Elizabethan classical English, but it's, it's, it sets it apart from Elias. It sets it apart from God's judicial mercy or God's sovereign mercy or any other kind of mercy. Okay? So, um, grace to you and peace from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or happy be. No, blessed be. Yulagetas. Uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of Oiktirmoi, the plural of Oiktirmas, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. All right, so it's plural in Romans 12, it's plural in 2 Corinthians 1 3. Um, Philippians 2 1, of course, is our passage we're looking at tonight. If there is any uh, comfort, if there's any consolation, if there is any uh, fellowship, if there is any compassion. Okay? Affection and compassion. Make my joy complete. How about Colossians 3.12? This is that great uh, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I love this chapter. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And I hadn't thought about it, but that whole context pretty much depends on pre-tribulational rapture of the church, doesn't it? How do we come with Him in glory to be revealed with Him if we're not there already by the time that happens? So the rapture that takes us there has to precede the second advent that uh, brings us back when He comes back. So anyway... And then we have the application of this. If we are heavenly minded, then we can have earthly applications such as considering the members of our earthly body as dead to fornication and impurity and all that other stuff. And then uh, we can lay aside, as it says in verse 9, the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. See, being saved, that wasn't the totality of God's plan. That's simply the beginning. And he who began a good work in you will complete it, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So then, verse 12, as those who have been chosen of God, as those who have been chosen of God, you see the context this gets put in? <laughs> are you or are you not saved by God's sovereign choice? You're, here he is. He saved you. Are you going to live in a contrary manner, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, this is something we have to do, a heart of compassion, that's our term, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. And you notice a lot of those pair up very well, don't they, with uh, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5? Okay? But Wiktirmos uh, is not in the fruit of the Spirit. But anyway, here it is a heart of compassion. And this actually combines, this uses both Splanknon and Oiktirmos together where they render it a, uh, put on a, a Splanknon of, of Oiktirmos, a heart of compassion. I'm pretty sure that's 
jog my memory, and since this is still up and running. Yeah. There's your Splankna Oiktiramu right there. A heart of compassion. Bowels of Oiktiramas. I know. All right. And so put it on. Why? Because if you don't have it on, if you insist on walking in darkness, if you insist on taking it off, right? Remember the command to walk in the light is the antithesis of walking in darkness. And if you're not walking in light, where are you? You're walking in darkness. And so when you're not putting on this heart of compassion, how easy do you think it's going to be to bear with one another and forgiving each other? Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Okay? Ooh, that'd be a good verse for a student maybe that's developing the doctrine of forgiveness. Like that one. All right. And then beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You know, the idea of compassion, the idea of, of empathy, the idea of understanding of uh, of uh, think if you think about it, this is why the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? I mean, God became man uh, that He humbled Himself, so that he, he was tempted in all things, even as we are. Why? So that He can identify with us, so that He can be our advocate, He can be our intercessor. He is able to come to the aid of those who are so tempted, uh, not because He's a sinner, but He identified with us, and our sins were imputed to Him, and now He identifies, right? He has that experience. He's able to have compassion. He's able to be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. All right? And then our last use here is Hebrews 10, 28. Hebrews 10, 28. I love Hebrews. My favorite book. Chapter 10 is my favorite chapter. Um, verse 28 is not my favorite verse. Then there's a larger context here. Specifically though, the, the, the verse that has the word in it is verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without wiktermos on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Okay. Now there can be there can be judicial mercy, which is elaos, but when the, when there is no judicial mercy and when the sentence is executed, those stones start flying, and there is no compassion in any stone. Okay, there is no wiktirmos when law is executed, and that's what's being said here. And that's the contrast then for how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? And this then brings it to us in the church age. So, I mean, when you, when you ever do those studies on law versus grace and how much greater grace is and how much more awesome and amazing, and I, I wouldn't trade the church age for anything. And, uh, you know, I would, if I had a time machine, I'd go back and do some sightseeing, but I, I wouldn't want to live there and I wouldn't want to be a, an Old Testament believer without the, the portfolio of assets we have in the body of Christ? Not at all. Okay? And so when you, when you do those studies, Bill Kelly just did one of those studies for us on Sunday with the Union with Christ study. Everything that's unique to us being in Christ and Old Testament believers didn't have any of that. Um, recognize with that also comes to whom much is given shall much be required. And that comes the greater accountability, the stricter judgment, the harsher wrath. How much more do you think we deserve? So, um, and in, really uh, in a context that backs up to verse 26, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, okay, if we flagrantly defy God, knowing what we know, church-age believers with a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit and a complete canon of Scripture and the example of every rebellion Israel ever had. <laughs> How dare we? Okay? We read about their grumbling. We read about their Meribah. We read about you know, the ten times they tempted God in the wilderness. We've got all that. And we're going to go do the same thing? Ooh. Okay? God's hand is on us as a father loves his children. So if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What do you do now? But a terrifying expectation of judgment. And this incorporates a lot of Mosaic law, but brings it up to our application. Okay, What do you do? The fury of a fire which consumes the adversaries. And so, you know, in the Old Testament, you had a sin offering, a trespass offering, a, a peace offering. A, you had all these different offerings, right? But the sin offering was not for the presumptuous, the, the willful, the defiant, the throw-it-in-your-face kind of sin. That was not. There was no sacrifice for that at all. You were unclean until the Day of Atonement. Once a year, then, the high priest can, can give you the, the, the reboot. But, um, but the, the, that meant you were done for that whole year. And so, uh, so you think about it. Now, we don't have that annual Day of Atonement anymore in the church age. We have the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So what happens to us when we commit one of those flagrant, defiant, uh, open rebellion sins, knowing what we know and hating God anyway and doing it spitefully anyway? Okay? What happens to us? What's the wrath of God in that circumstance? All right. It's a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. Uh, how much severer punishment, so you get down to verse 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve? Do you think we get double discipline? Triple discipline? Ten times? Twenty times? I mean, what's the, what's the ratio of grace over law, of body of Christ over Israel for accountability? How much severer do you think he will deserve? And thankfully, deserve is our way of escape. Because grace doesn't give us what we earn or deserve. But how do you think he will deserve? Who has, look, look at this, trampled underfoot the Son of God. Just walked all over him. And regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. You just look at the blood of the cross and say, eh, no big deal. And has insulted the spirit of grace. If you commit a preemptive sin where you just kind of well, I'm going to do it anyway, but then I'll just rebound tomorrow. Ooh. <laughs> this is your passage, okay? That's what this is about. Insulting the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Don't fall for it when these liberals tell you that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. That the God of the Old Testament was this angry God of Jehovah wrath, and the God of the New Testament is this friendly, loving, turn the other cheek, Jesus of, of Mamby Pamby land. Okay? There's only one God. And He still is terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. We are His people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So there you go. And then, ooh, this was an earlier conversation too from this morning. Remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. And so, you know, we ought to be able to reflect back to a time, to a moment, to an event when we, when we saw the light, when we were enlightened, when we passed out of death into light, okay? Maybe we can't pinpoint the hour of the day, but we, we certainly know the, the general time of our life when we... Uh, when we were transferred from in Adam to in Christ. All right, so there's that. If there's any affection, if there's any compassion, okay? If there's any affection, if there's any compassion. And these are the provisions. So we, we have, uh, again, let's come back to Philippians 1, or Philippians 2, 1. If there is any, of course there is. There's tons. There's tons. And the more believers you fellowship with, the more brothers and sisters that you pray with, the more of the body of Christ, you come alongside, then uh, what does that mean? We went for somebody to say more problems. True. More occasions for misunderstanding and more venues for hurt feelings and more opportunities for tests. But, but with that comes what? Joy. More glory for Christ. More, more opportunities to serve. More uh, blessings. 
more encouragement, more consolation, more fellowship, more affection and compassion. Because all of that's going to come through brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. None of that's going to come just mystically. None of that's going to come with the heavens parting and rays of sun coming down and all of a sudden you're going to feel, ooh, this is the encouragement in Christ. Or ooh, this is the consolation of love. No, it comes through people. Brothers and sisters. Okay, Sinners saved by grace, same as you. And so, uh, yeah. And so if there is any, any, there's tons Tons of encouragement, tons of consolation, tons of fellowship, tons of affection and compassion, all with brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. So all of that being assumed, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. And it's really, it's a no-brainer. It's a very powerful way to introduce an imperative. It's a very powerful way to introduce a command, right? Um. There's a, you're going to look at that in a moment, but um, you know how to give commands, right, to your children or your spouse or your whatever, your employees or coworkers or whatever. There, there's ways to give commands that are just going to light a match on a bonfire before you even start. And you can give a command that you know you're phrasing it in such a way that that's the last thing they're going to do. <laughs> right? When I was working in the jail, and Jason can testify to this because he was my co-worker back in those days, anytime an inmate told me something I couldn't do, right? Any inmate that said, you can't do whatever, fill in the blank, fill in the blank, okay? What was the first thing I did? I guarantee you if the inmate said there was something I couldn't do, I had that done within the hour. That was going to be done immediately. I was going to do that right off the bat just to show, hey, guess what? I can do this. Okay? Anyway, that was not just to be an ordinary jerk with, with the inmates. That was to demonstrate and to teach. Okay? So, there are ways to tell somebody to do something, to tell somebody not to do something, and there are ways to do it in a very ugly way, that kind of are counterproductive. But there are ways that are very positive, okay? There are ways that can introduce a command. You can introduce a command in such a way that by the time it gets to the command, it's already sold, okay? That, that, they're going to do it. They're going to do it, okay? So, um, and, you know, rightly, wrongly, whatever. That can be highly manipulative also, and we don't, you know, we're not about being manipulative. But what I'm illustrating, though, this is what Paul's done. He has laid out these four assumptions. And these assumptions are so easy. These assumptions are so obvious. Yes, are you kidding me? Fellowship, consolation, uh, uh, comfort or encouragement, affection, compassion. Yeah, there's all of that. So how can I not do what Paul's ordering me to do? Okay? And that's what we have here. So assuming all those four things then, do this. Do, if there's any, do this. If there's any, okay? If you have any, whatever, do this. And I was trying to think, I asked my brother and I asked my wife, and I was trying, there's a movie that uses this. There's a movie, and I think it's Harry Potter. I, I, there's a movie that, that does this. And somebody is begging and pleading with somebody else. And I think they're begging and they're pleading with, with Snape. And they say, you know, if you used to love Harry's mother, right? Because when they were in school, Snape was in love with Harry's mother. And, and that's the appeal. If, if you ever loved Lily, then do this, Right? And that's the, that's the basis of the appeal. If there was anything there, okay. And I'm sure there's other movies too that I'm forgetting. If there was any, you know, did we ever have anything, did we ever have anything special? I mean, things like that. But if there ever was anything, then do this for the sake of, of that, right? And, and, and really, all those screenwriters are ripping off the Bible <laughs> because it's coming right out of Philippians 2. If there's any 
fellowship, if there's any encouragement, if there's any consolation, if there's any affection and compassion. Make my joy complete. And so by you put a command that way, well then, yeah, I want to do that. So make my joy complete. Uh, the verb there is plerao, P-L-E-R-O-O. It's one of our fun o verbs. It's an o verb. Um, anyway, you don't get that in first year, but you get that towards the end of first year, maybe, or second year. You get, yeah, it comes later just because the, the, uh, the, the paradigms are tougher, but plerao is the verb. It's a long E, the eta, P-L-E-R-O-O, plerao, uh, with, with uh, 87 New Testament uses. The Bible uses a lot of plerao. It uses a lot of fulfill, fill, complete, be filled with the Spirit, fill, uh, to fill up joy, to fill. There's a lot of things that get filled or fulfilled or completed. And uh, so there are 87 uses. It's rare, though, for it to be in the imperative. Rarely in the imperative. Only three times. Matthew 23, 32, Ephesians 5, 18, and here tonight, Philippians 2, 2. Out of the 87 uses this verb shows up, only three of them are commands. Only three of them are imperatives. Be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5, 18. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be plerao'd with the Holy Spirit. That's a command. Continually be filled by God the Holy Spirit. It's a passive imperative too, by the way. Um, we also have uh, Matthew 23, 32. I don't remember. Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Here's another confrontation. These Pharisees calls them hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs. Yeah, real pretty on the outside, but uh, what's inside? You still have the dead man's bones. You're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And legalism can always do this. You can put on a show and people think, ooh, there's a very moral person and a churchgoer and all this fine upstanding member of the community and you got no idea how ugly that heart is because it's all phony so he's calling them out on this yeah uncleanness dead men's bones inwardly full of hypocrisy and lawlessness all right yeah the kingdom of heaven is not in those guys <laughs> all right woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous so, and you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. We would never do that. Think about it. You know, how many legalists do you know? And they've got this long list of sins that they would never do because the, the fact that they don't do them makes them better than the people who do do them. Okay. And yet their sins are just as bad. They're prideful. They're arrogant. They're legalistic. They're boastful. They're, they're uh, hateful. And they're phonies. Oh, but I would never do that. And Jesus says, yeah, you would. You would do worse. You testify against yourselves. You're sons of those who murdered the prophets and you're worse than those who murdered the prophets. You're building all these tombs to the prophets like that counts for something. Huh. You know, donating money to charity, is, is that going to soothe your conscience because you've done all this other stuff? And yet... Because see, these guys are going to crucify the Christ. Think about it. Okay? They would have done the exact same thing. They would have done even worse had they been around back then. So then he goes on to say, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. And that's one of the only three imperatives of Plerao anywhere in the, in the New Testament. He tells them, go ahead. Do it. It's like when he told Judas, what you do, do quickly. He's telling these Pharisees, just fill it up, fill it up, and uh, it's going to happen. They're going to they're shake their fist at God and say, His blood be on us and on our children. They're going to demand Barabbas. They're going to say, crucify the Christ. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell?
All right, thanks. So you read 34 through 36 there. And judicially now, God's going to take all of the culpability for every martyr that's ever died from Abel to Zechariah, and he's going to assign it to this generation and pour out his wrath right here on, uh, on this generation. That's why he weeps at uh, Jerusalem. So, truly, truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then Jer- verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That's the will of God. I wanted to, well, what kept him from doing it? Is there something that thwarted his sovereignty? What kept him from doing it? I wanted to, but you were unwilling. Wow. So behold, your house is being left to you desolate. This is why the kingdom's delayed. The king can't come down until Israel's repentant. I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until the Jewish people digest Psalm 118 and, and can fully sing the Hosanna doctrine that's there. Until they sing Hosanna, Jesus can't come to bring the kingdom. The Jewish people aren't ready for it. They reject it. <laughs> on Palm Monday, the only ones singing Hosanna were the children. They were the only ones singing Hosanna. They were the only ones that had Psalm 118 doctrine. The Pharisees were telling them to shut up. <laughs> yeah, right? Ordering Jesus, make those kids stop singing. And Jesus said, are you kidding me? Don't you know the Hosanna doctrine from Psalm 118? If, if these kids stop singing, the stones will start singing. All right. Anyway, if you want to know why... Uh, the second advent hasn't happened yet. Why the kingdom hasn't happened yet? Israel's not yet repentant. And uh, it's going to take tribulation to get them there. Not until hell's unleashed. Not until Antichrist uh, attempts their extermination. It takes that level of judgment to bring about the Jewish repentance. That will bring about the second advent of Jesus Christ. From now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right, so we have play rao. Now, along with play rao, there's a compound of play rao, ana play rao. And ana play rao has six uses. And you want to take six uses of ana play rao to fill. Ana tends to be a repetitive type prefix sometimes, so to fill again, ana play rao. Uh, then you have play roma, that's a noun, play roma. The fullness is the play roma. I love that as a noun. Colonel Theme taught about play roma a lot. Um, taught about Plerao, the Pleroma. And there was some, it, was, it was a big doctrine for, for Pastor Theme during his lifetime. There's a church in Tullahoma, Tennessee called Pleroma Bible Church. My buddy Clay Ward is the, is the pastor there at Pleroma Bible Church. 17 uses of Pleroma. Then there's the adjective of Plerace. Plerace is the adjective and it, it just means full. It describes a noun and if something is full then something is Plerace. And so really um, you want to put all of those together 87 plus 6 plus 17 plus 16 and mash all those together. And you're going to have a, I don't call it a word study, I call it a root study because you're, you're looking at the same root from which the verb, the noun, the adjective, uh, they all come. And uh, you get a, a tremendous root study there. And I'm going to save that for um, Sunday morning, Lord willing and rapture pending because um, there's a lot of them. Ooh, what happened there? Where did it go? There we go. And so um, you'll notice if I can make it bigger for you. Anyway, there's 126 verses to look at. And if we do all the page flipping, it's going to take forever. So instead of doing the page flipping, we'll just put the snippets up there and let us scan down through the thing and, and refresh our memory of verses we already know. We already know a lot of times when Scripture is being fulfilled, it's Pleroma. Scripture is being Pleromaed. And so something was said in the Old Testament, but that's not Pleromaed yet until it happens in the life of Christ or it happens in the New Testament or it gets fulfilled as Pleroma. So this took place to fulfill what was spoken of by the Lord. Anyway, there's a fulfillments. Um, you put a patch on a garment, that's a Pleroma. 
Uh, there, there's other things. This joy of mine has been made full. He multiplies the loaves and the fishes and they have pleroma baskets full of uh, uh, playrace full of, full of bread. So we'll do a lot. There's a lot there. And uh, after we look at them though, then we're going to zero in. Because I think fullness is a, is a, is a good study. Fullness is a great study. Um, and, then, and then we're going to zero in on when does the Bible take fullness principles and combine it with joy. Because that's what Paul's talking about here. He says, make my joy complete. Fulfill my joy. Complete my joy. And so those uses are, are, are useful as well. Alright? I'm over time. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for sustaining uh, my voice in the midst of cedar season. Thank you for um, all that you do, Father. Every, uh, every day, every moment of every day. Uh, we pray that you would increase our capacity to identify your work so that you will increase our capacity to praise you for your work. Um, the, more, the more we know you, the better we love you, and it's all just uh, it's sweeter, Father, as the days go by. So I thank you for all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Thank you, folks.